This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton. For the last time in 2021, thanks for clicking play on the podcast. Well, here we go, nature nerds. We are at the end of 2021. Could you believe it? 12 months. 12 months have passed of this bizarre year. (laughs) Oh, man, it's been insane. But for Into the Wild, I've had a banging year. We've released 50 episodes and nearly hit 30,000 downloads. I'm absolutely buzzing. And none of this, and I've said it before, and I'm about to get soppy, but none of this could have happened without you lot. If you support the show on social media, whether that be on Twitter or Instagram, if you DM me to say hello and thank you or send me an email to give me a nice review or review us on iTunes, or if you buy me a coffee on ko-fi.com, which the link can be found up in the write-up of this episode, seriously, do it, I'm gasping, then thanks so much. You lot are absolute legend. You're so nice to me about this show, which in reality, half the time, I think is... <laughs> I never think I'm doing a good job. Every week I'm saying to Christina, does this sound okay? Every week I'm messaging Oscar going, oh, I think I f***ed up the intros. And people tell me it's not, but I never believe it's good. But that's the comedian in me, I guess. Always the critical. But genuinely, thank you so much. It is such a privilege to be able to do this. To be able to have these lovely chats with people that work with wildlife around the world. To nerd out about beetles, corals, conservation. It's its just amazing. And there's not one person I've spoken to on the show that I have not absolutely loved every minute of. And better yet, I've met some of them this year, which I never thought I'd do. So thanks for giving me this opportunity. And please, and I mean this, for God's sake, keep listening. Otherwise, I'll have to stop and it'll be really depressing. But this year is coming to an end. And I really hope that 2022 is better. Jesus, I hope it is better. I don't I don't know what I want from 2022 for me and you lot, whether that's structure or normality. What, I, what, if, what even is normal? I don't know. What is normal? Being able to go and see my parents without feeling guilty about hugging them? Being able to bugger off to Portugal with Christina to sit by a swimming pool and drink rum and cokes until we're absolutely off our nut? That used to be the normal. I wouldn't mind having elements of that back. But I hope 2022 is okay for you as well. I hope we can get some of our lives back and not feel guilty about not having an injection in our arm every three months. But for Into the Wild, we've got some absolute banging things to look forward to. As I said, we've got Namibia coming up in January where we'll be filming Beyond the Trigger and then that'll be coming out later on in the year. I've already got several incredible episodes planned for January, February and March and I'm absolutely buzzing to be able to bring you some of the chats that we've got. On top of that, I am starting with a friend of mine in Archway, a new wildlife community garden, which I'll be updating via Into the Wild social media. 
And then on top of that, I've got invites galore to travel around the UK to do some more on-location episodes with people running incredible community conservation work. So, the year may be up, but Into the Wild is certainly not finished. Okay, let's introduce the last episode of 2021. Sorry about the swearing, I have had a beer. I feel like this year that Conservation Chat has been all about involving the local communities, whether that be here in the UK, over in America, or in indigenous areas and developing countries. It's about working with the people to benefit wildlife for both sides. So on this episode, I spoke with naturalist and wildlife presenter, Madison bowden Parry, AKA on Instagram, Madison Wildlife. Madison has a huge passion for not only marine photography, but also community conservation. We had a lovely chat about the importance of it and the strengths that can be found when we involve local people with benefiting the wildlife. So until I talk to you in 2022, for the last time may I introduce an episode, this is Community Conservation with Madison Bowden Parry. The last one, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with the last episode, you, you've yeah. got a drink, I've got a beer, we can just have a bit yeah. of a chilled chat at the beginning. <laughs> I'm a- I'm I'm on the the Tenzing natural energy. I mean, I uh, okay. Now I sound a bit like because I thought you were having. It looked like a cider, but it's not a cider. It's just an energy drink. No, it's a natural energy drink. Apparently. Well, okay. For the listeners, Madison's on that natural energy drink. I'm on a Sam Miguel. <laughs> <laughs> I have got. Beer I thought this in was the end of the wild Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> Need a buffet. What's going on? How are we going to do a buffet over Zoom? <laughs> Let's actually, the first question we should start with, Madison. Can you start by telling everyone who you are and what is it you do? I'm Maddie. Some of you might know me as um, Madison Wildlife on Instagram or not. I would like to be <laughs> modest with that. <laughs> Some of you may not know me at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a conservationist and a naturalist. Also a behavioural ecologist, marine and natural history photographer and science communicator. I work for the Wildlife Trust of South and West Wales in wildlife conservation and digital communications. But to be honest, I've had quite a varied background and I wear many hats. I've mostly worked in sort of small scale community conservation projects within coastal communities. So sort of working within um, habitat creation in urban green spaces to help build resilience for wildlife and people living in that local area. And sort of worked as like this, you know, a project manager for these types of projects and mostly ones that focus on urban and coastal areas and how we bridge the gap between ecology and sustainability to create spaces that benefit wildlife and people and reduce impact on the local area and enhance biodiversity and improve community well-being, really. That's amazing. It is nice when you hear someone say that the work they're involved in is mixing wildlife conservation also with mm-hmm. local communities or whether that be an area in the UK or whether that may be in somewhere of, you know, people that are indigenous to that area or a developing country. It's so nice to hear that that work is starting to be bridged together because I think for so many years it wasn't. (laughs) And it was like one and the other, and now it's starting to bridge it together a bit more. Absolutely. It's quite prominent, really. And, you know, as community members, as individuals, we have such an important role to play in conservation, but also conservation and management that's so heavily influenced by how we think an area should be conserved and a lot of it is you know economically driven um so it's uh quite interesting to sort of and it's important 
to bring in not just the environmental objectives, but also the social objectives as well. Um, into the nature conservation work that we do yeah absolutely so you obviously like you said you wear many hats in the nature world <laughs> and, or, or do and have worn many hats yeah um, yeah i guess so. so quite evidently wildlife and nature means a great deal to you but what would you say if i was to ask you what does wildlife and nature mean to you what would you say gosh um i would say that's an awfully hard question no. um <laughs> we start strong we start strong no i think i really like this question albeit hard one it's quite important to talk about this because when we think about biodiversity and climate crises just bear with me here we often think about it not sort of directly affecting us and our local environment and we sort of see it as this like distant happening across the horizon yeah. because, and thinking of that what it means to me now is definitely not what it means to me when I was younger there's a mm. very big disconnect there so to me now unfortunately it means like species recovery nature's recovery improving the lives of people across the globe but as a child it was most certainly quite simple things like <laughs> yeah. curiosity, adventure, opportunities, yeah. diversity. You know, my childhood was very much shaped by nature and it means a lot different to me now than it did. But, you know, when I think about my home in South Wales and what it means for the wildlife here, um, I don't want to be miserable or morbid, but I think about what it means to me now is increased weather events affecting vulnerable species. I think of species encounters that we most definitely shouldn't be having here in Wales, like mm. the walrus, for example. <laughs> You know, I'm so, certainly, I'm so you know, glad you brought it. up the f***ing walrus. <laughs> <laughs> and now plural. I can say plural, can't I? Yeah, no, yeah, you can, yeah. Jesus, that's yeah. bizarre. I mean, don't get me I wrong, know. I love a walrus at the best of times, but it is concerning yeah. when they are appearing. Absolutely, and it just it just makes me think about all the things that are changing and how fast everything is changing as well, the pace, you know. So it's very, uh, it's a mixed emotions on that question, really. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer, though, because I don't think we've ever had that before. Though. It was one thing when I was growing up, it's now something different, and especially with the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis, it now means something that slightly, I guess, feels more drastic as a yeah. want to try and save or do more, whereas when you're a kid, like you said, you just wanted to go and lift a log to find some exactly. you know, centipedes and wood lice and maybe a beetle, yeah. and, or you wanted to go and collect some frog spawner because you wanted to stare at it for an hour, like... Yeah, I was very much that child. Yes, yeah, so, 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 yeah, those those examples were used for a reason from me. <laughs> I was that child. I think I still am now, probably the most annoying person in the room, but I was that child who asked why all the time. I still do now. You know, <laughs> literally everything. It's like, why is that bird doing that? Why can't I go and rock pool today? Why can't I yeah. take this home with me you know so yeah. I was I was the type where I was I'm very fortunate to live on the coast and I've grown up here and I spent a lot of time exploring my you know local intertidal habitats and I was just obsessed with it really just so curious about the mm. natural world and I loved going rock pooling and everything so I was the type that was always sort of down there and don't you know I know my answer was is quite mixed but nature's really shaped me it you know, shape mm. my childhood and stuff. And it's very different. I view it very differently now. There's loads of things that I keep I keep with me. So like like in different seasons when it's spring or something and I see like 200 
peacock caterpillars all over the nettles i get really excited i'm like oh god i want to get closer and see all Mm -hmm. the different stages of them and stuff and that's kind of like my stereotypically child brain coming out going i want to get closer and have a look but then at the same time Mm -hmm. when i'm at home and i'm like you know going on twitter and something and i see like petitions or news articles or threads so many wildlife threads Mm -hmm. and you're just like oh good lord like you know so much that that's my adult side of the worry that i wouldn't want to push that information so that's yeah. a really interesting answer to have two sides do you think you often go back to that child brain of interest in nature <laughs> absolutely ryan i've never absolutely left absolutely all the time <laughs> yeah never that's why i say the most annoying person in the room asking so many questions i'm still yeah. as curious as i was and you know i just look at the particularly dorset nature local adventures i love them and i always make sure i have time for them and make time for them because that's where my love for the natural world and, you know, going out and birding and just getting my hands dirty, you know, that's where it came from. So I, I do make sure I make time for that. And I definitely, I don't cling on to that sort of childlike brain. Yeah. I embrace it because I think mm. it's really important, you know, to, to keep curious and to keep asking questions. I think, especially in the last five years, every, <laughs> everyone should visit their child brain again. <laughs> because yeah, the world's been a absolutely. challenging place, whether you're looking naturally, socially, mm-hmm. economically, politically, <laughs> all these things. Yeah, very much so. Just go back to your child brain and get excited about the things you used to do as a child. Yeah. It's That's yeah. a good bit of it. I feel like, should we just yeah. close the episode the there? simple things. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Good Shortest episode ever. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about another hat of yours. You said you love, or you're good at, I'm I'm not even going to say you love it. You're very good at it because I follow you on Instagram. I see it. you love marine photography. How did you get... Well, actually, you live by the mm. coast. So I guess it was either look up or get in the water. So how did you get into marine photography? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's something that's really, you know, been a huge part of my career and mm. my personal interest. Because believe it or not, I didn't actually start in academia. I started mm. out in the arts. I did marine and natural history photography oh, cool. undergraduate at Falmouth university in cornwall and really you know wildlife and and marine photography in particular allowed me to combine my love for wildlife and adventure at the same time you know it gave me lots of different skills and and tools that i wanted to tell stories of wildlife and i didn't really know this at the start but i was really attracted what really attracted me to wildlife photography was the opportunity to give Mm. wildlife a voice and it really wasn't until my final year project where that really resonated with me and put wildlife storytelling on the map for me. And I just, I was just really interested in it. And I really love that I can create visuals that contribute towards inspiring change and telling stories about wildlife that I'm photographing or filming, you know, and creating these visuals that document real life happenings or snippets into the lives of elusive wildlife or um, vulnerable wildlife as well. I think it's it's really powerful. I mean, uh, from a very amateur photography point of view, for me, like, you know, I've got my camera, I like to go out and take pictures. I know when I go out of my camera, I know exactly what I'm looking for. I like, despite being six foot seven, I like to get down very... <laughs> I like to <laughs> lay down on the floor often and get very low-level photos. I like wildflower, I like insects. I like nice. really getting down and getting that background. For you, when you're underwater, what's your, this is my go-to for, do you have a, like a, that's what I like to capture? It depends, really. I've had some amazing opportunities to Mm. travel a lot 
with wildlife and marine photography. For my final year project, I worked with uh, Blue Sharks and I worked with like BBC and Nat Geo photographers and shark scientists in Baja, California. We were essentially documenting behaviours and sort of building a portfolio of shark movement and interaction with people and how being considerate, being having ethical and responsible encounters with sharks and stuff and all the social, like sort of social benefits from that for shark perceptions Mm. in the media and things. But it depends what I'm photographing. If I want to do a landscape, I try and get as low as possible. And I'm using, if I'm using a dome port, as close as possible as well. But mostly for me, I like getting down. I like the same as you. I like getting down low. And it's yeah. all about composition for me, really. It didn't really, I didn't clock on to that originally. I was really just enthused about taking photos of wildlife. And that came yeah. as my skills developed and I kept adding tools to my toolbox and understanding how composition works to frame a photo and to make a photo, I guess, come across different. So it it really depends what I'm photographing is, but I like to get down low and I use video lights as well with the camera that I use for underwater photography. Yeah. They aren't as harsh as What's strokes. What's the best photo you've ever taken? <laughs> that is another hard <laughs> And this is your moment Ooh. to boast your best photo. Okay. It'd probably be one of, my, one of my blue shark photos. You might have seen it on my page. I've actually got some up on my wall because I'm really modest. See, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. I know. If I ask someone their best <laughs> thing they ever do, I want, I want it on the fridge or the wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's framed. Yeah. Is it framed on your wall? Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're actually mounted on Perspex. Good Lord. That sounds awful, but... No, it sounds good. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I said to my housemate about this, because we've... My housemate... Like, side topic, sorry, listeners. My housemate okay. does a bit of photography, very, yeah. like, kind of street photography, black and white, Polaroid kind of thing. And I was like, you've got some amazing pictures of, like, where we live, Highgate and Archway and the local area. I've got some lovely pictures of Hampstead Heath with insects and the ponds and stuff. Nice. I was like, we should fill the walls with a few photos and she was like nah it's too smug i don't want to do that i was like no what really no no, i would love that i've got some (laughs) got some amazing b photos where i'm like that would look great in the hallway (laughs) but no it's not allowed to happen just come back with loads of prints yeah yeah sure just do it i'll just do it for christmas see just do it i'll get her that's what i'll get her for christmas i'll just get her 20 photos of Hampstead heath taken by ryan That's what she wanted. That's what she wants. That's what I want. <laughs> I think that's great that you've got your pictures on your wall. Community conservation is our main topic today. And I feel more and more the idea of involving communities in conservation is becoming the norm, which is a very good thing. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about why you think it's important to involve community with wildlife conservation? Yeah, so this approach to conservation is becoming particularly prominent with within nature conservation and environmental protection projects because we're actually starting to notice and starting you know to point out the importance of people within the conservation sector and of course policy Mm. as well so as i said earlier you know conservation and management varies so much from one area to the next on one project to the next and of course you can't for argument's sake you can't conserve one piece of land the same as the next but also conservation and management is really heavily influenced by how we think it should be conserved and in regards to economic, social and environmental perceptions, but and more often than not, one of them only only gets the, the front row. But the community-based conservation approach to nature conservation is, is being used extensively now as a way to sort of ad- address all of those objectives. Mm. And it's unique in the sense that it's not really a new approach, and a lot of us are doing it anyway. We just don't know that we are. 
but it's an approach that's it's widely used because of its goal to recognize those social objectives and to recognize the importance of people in nature conservation and the connections that we have with our local environment so essentially you know, this approach to conservation it, it follows a really important social ecological systems framework which essentially just translates to acknowledging that the social and ecological benefits and objectives to conservation are not mutually exclusive. They are interlinked with each Mm -hmm. other. And what I really like is the IUCN describe it as linking the human system, which is communities, societies, um, livelihoods and cultures, etc., with the natural system, which is our ecosystems, wildlife and and habitats, in this sort of two-way feedback loop. So essentially one benefits from the other and vice versa. And you could definitely argue that it's not a vice versa situation here. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> natural world, Like if we stopped off, <laughs> the planet would be fine. Yeah. but uh, The planet know, wants uh, us to stop. <laughs> it just wants to get rid of us, but no. But yeah. I guess you could argue that, definitely, and that is such a valid argument. But hmm. natural world does definitely benefit from us and there are many ways in which it does just think of all the millions of people and us included who are dedicating our lives to championing championing change positive change for the natural Mm -hmm. world and also on the other end of the spectrum communities across the globe that coexist with wildlife in a shared landscape and sort of just show an amazing example of how we can do that and we are social beings so by really tapping into that relationship we have with the natural world. We we put ourselves in a really good position to lead on positive change. So communities have a really important role to play in conservation because, as we discussed earlier, the biodiversity and climate crises is such a multi-level complex task. And yeah. it particularly involves and affects many social aspects within it. For example, the devastating impacts that it's having to people and communities across the globe. And I guess, for example, for Indigenous peoples and and vulnerable communities, utilising this approach, so the community conservation approach, allows for those who are really at the forefront of change to actively contribute to projects that will enhance their own livelihoods, protect natural resources, restore ecosystem services that they rely on so heavily, and of course, enhance biodiversity in the area which in turn increases resilience for wildlife and for people. And what we are really seeing now is from evidence across the globe is that these community-based conservation projects really help instill sustained engagement for communities. And this is because they use that approach that is heavily based upon meeting the needs of local people for projects that focus on natural solutions, you know, to decrease disaster risk or help communities adapt to climate change or increase in ecosystem services and restoration projects. This approach really allows for such a variety of opportunities to arise for the local people to take ownership and responsibility over the natural resources, become stewards of their local environment Mm. and, you know, be a part of something that is really positively affecting their livelihood and their well-being. And this is exactly the same for smaller based projects like urban greening or green infrastructure projects. You know, they all bring, by using this approach, it brings such a multitude of benefits to communities and community members, learning new skills, increasing environmental education, learning about sustainable development, and just play you know, such a an active part within that. It's important when we say involving local communities or people with these kind of projects, 
we're not just talking about people in developing countries. We're not just talking no. about indigenous people. We're talking no. about people that live in the Western world as well. Absolutely. So, because I really want to make that clear when we're talking about new job opportunities, new skill sets, new things like that. We're not saying it from a privileged point of view going, we have this already and we're willing to allow the other yeah. uh, other countries to have this. We're saying this is a global thing. This is every yeah. single country needs to connect their local communities, their people yeah. with nature in order to learn more skill sets and have yeah. more job opportunities and stuff. Absolutely. And I think that's something to really importantly highlight because when you look at something, and I'll use these two countries just because it's two countries that I've focused on for the last year and a half with some of the work I've done. Yeah. If you look at England and if you look at Namibia, and you compare these two in the percentage of the land that is protected for wildlife mm. and the communities that are involved, there is a shocking difference. And yeah. it's negative on our side. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's something that's really important to highlight is when we're talking about community-led conservation, we're not mm-hmm. just talking about abroad here. We're no. talking about it on our own doorstep. Absolutely. So with community based conservation where have we seen success with this in the uk yeah so there are some really fantastic community based conservation projects out there uh, particularly in the uk some of which are sort of purely focused on restoration type projects like nature-based solutions and others are smaller scale or digital citizen science types projects but that's the real beauty of community-based conservation because it can vary so much but it's an approach that can be used for almost all nature conservation projects. So I guess I would mention Sea Wilding. Sea Wilding are a fantastic organisation that I follow on social media and I I really love to keep up to date with them. You can follow them on Instagram. But they utilise the community-based conservation approach to the max and I just love everything that they do. They are a community-led charity that focus on marine ecosystem-based restoration in Scotland. So in Mm. partnership with other organisations um, and the local coastal community, they aim to restore vital um, ecosystems and enhance biodiversity. So they plant seagrass seeds and restore native oyster beds in Loch Craignish. Yeah, so this project is uh, amazing. and It's a really good example of landscape scale environmental protection projects that u- is utilising yeah. this community approach perfectly because they, they meet the needs of the local community by providing so many opportunities to them to become stewards of their coast that's so cool yeah it's really really cool and they offer like training days opportunities to harvest and process seagrass seeds and release semi-mature oysters back into the bay and other opportunities to lead or partake in research projects as well including like citizen science project with their academic partners so there's so many opportunities that will apply and be of interest to a lot of the community but the awesome bit is I believe that they're trying to create like a mobile seagrass seed processing unit so what they can do is they can train up yeah loads of different communities across Scotland and roll out this project at a huge scale all across Scotland I think that's pretty awesome and it really utilizes Mm the community-based conservation approach to its fullest because it's giving the community the resources to really lead on change in their area. I think it's fantastic, really. That is incredible, isn't it? So like spread it throughout the whole country. I know, I thought that was <laughs> like, a fantastic going, goal. Yeah. Yeah, you start with a small community and you go, actually, there's communities everywhere in this country. Let's just roll this out. Exactly. Everywhere. <laughs> I know. That's amazing. Yeah, there's another another project that is probably worth mentioning as well. This is one I've recently was looking up into because in my spare time I like to look, I like to read 
about community <laughs> conservation projects across Why would the you UK. Not? Why would I know. You not? Yeah, I know. I'm a bit like that. <laughs> it's good. I, I think it's great to see what communities are doing and you know how mm. you can sort of link up and grow that community network, community-based conservation network. I think that's really important because obviously it's a, you know it focuses on that that big social aspect of nature conservation and learning from other communities and and linking up with them is is just as important really but they yeah. there are some amazing sort of nature-based solution projects across the uk and it's worth mentioning about nature-based solutions because at the heart of mbs is people because they use nature sustainably to address societal challenges but the med mary project is a coastal realignment project in west sussex and i think it was in 2013 they finished it they completed it and i'm pretty sure it was the largest uh, open coast realignment project yeah. in Europe. It was oh, a huge, wow. yeah, it was a huge project. And essentially what they did is is they created an inland structural sea defence, which exposed an intertidal area. They had a sea defence that was existing and it was shingle and it wasn't very efficient and it was particularly costly every year. And this community was suffering from flooding particularly bad. So the project, it was an environment agency project, but it worked with local authorities, parishes, businesses, other local people, like landowners and farmers who did conservation grazing on um, on yes. intertidal habitats and residents as well. And what they did is they formed this stakeholder group. That meant that the community could be directly involved in the decision-making processes, as well as like project objectives and the messages as well around it, which is the true, like sea wilding is the true community-based conservation approach and it's uh because of this amazing engagement strategy that they had with the local people um they were able to create about 184 hectares of salt marsh and mud flat habitats as well as loads of other yeah loads of other priority habitats as well so the ecological effect was huge and i'm pretty sure the the rspb reported on a significant increase of bird populations using that area as well but in general this project was really fantastic because not only was the ecological effect huge for the bird populations as well in the area, but yeah. it was also really likely to increase carbon storage capabilities because of the intertidal yeah. habitat that was created, obviously. But the local people also benefited hugely from the scheme. And it's actually now taught in schools, in their local curriculum, which is amazing. Oh, wow. Well, that, that kind of project system of how to... Yeah. That's incredible. And how successful it was. And it has created a huge income generation for the population because they were a lower income population. So it's really mm. contributed to income generation there. And of course, their well-being, because there was loads of creation of accessible footpaths and cycle routes within the scheme. So yeah. even though like the community didn't really lead on it, they were huge participators in it. And it benefited the project and also the, the people socio and economically as well which was really cool. That's amazing. What an incredible project to have such a success with as well. Are there any sectors of wildlife conservation, whether that be in the UK or abroad, do you, that you think need more community-led work? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I would say here is probably we know it's already happening, and that is within urban communities yeah. and urban greening and green infrastructure because there are so many benefits that these types of projects and what they can bring to the local people and the local wildlife as well. That's something that I was involved in in my local coastal community was habitat creation and urban greening and sort of creating spaces within an urban green space, I guess, that is beneficial to people 
and wildlife and makes them more resilient as well. As someone that lives in a city, I would say that's, yeah, that's yeah. very true. <laughs> but the, I think the challenge with a city is that everything's so fast moving. Absolutely, yeah. Is that you don't have that opportunity to grab people's attention all the time to go... We're doing this. <laughs> we're, do, we're doing this or... Yeah. Or do you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know how it works. Or like there, there's this opportunity, there's a project leading. I mean, there there are things going on. Like you said, of course, there's always things going on. But when you have such a vast population of people in one area... I guess it's hard to always keep that community feel. I guess I've also lived in areas of London where actually I've had a bigger community feel here mm. than I have in small towns that I've lived in the UK. So maybe that's a load of crap. I'm not sure. But I think the problem is, you know, we have a lot of community groups globally that come together over a common goal and then sort of go, you know, naturally progress up the the resources and the and the funding ladder to then collaborate with local governments, etc., and go from it that direction. What's happened there is that we've already got community members who are interested in nature conservation. They want to do something that will benefit local wildlife and local habitats and wild spaces. But what we're not seeing is that the community-based conservation approach can be practitioner-led as well. And we need more of that. We need more agencies, need more local governments, yeah. local authorities to recognise the importance of people in nature conservation, understand the values, the perceptions and how our relationship is with our local environment and what benefits we can get from being involved in projects like that. And I think that is a big disconnect when it comes to local policies and, and local environmental projects that go on in local communities mm. and a lot of community consultation is like non-existent sometimes and it it should be instilled in project yeah. planning and implementation throughout the whole of it okay last question of the podcast madison and this is this is a big one actually because this is the last oh, no. bit of advice <laughs> We're ever going to have for 2021 from an Into the Wild episode. So we've had so much advice from every single guest. You know, if they could give one bit, but you're putting that cherry on the cake. No pressure. No pressure. Okay, no pressure. But if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? It's actually quite a difficult one because I guess going off what I've talked about today, how we look how we perceive and most importantly how we engage with our natural environments has such a profound influence on its future and our future but none of those relationships are the same for one given individual across Mm. the globe and I think it's really really important when going forward to recognize that because for us to reach our climate and biodiversity targets and ultimately achieve environmental justice we can't even begin to think that that is achievable without social justice, which is why I'm such an advocate for community work, because it's for wildlife and it's for people. We have to remember that we're not apart from nature, we are a part of it, and it's really past the point that we should be acting on it and we should have pulled our finger out by now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's putting it very politely. Yeah. (laughs) That's the most polite I've ever heard that put. (laughs) Yeah, well, I tried to make sure that it was polite. Well, that's a very good bit of advice. I think that's a lovely way to end 
on the last episode of 2021. Madison, it's been lovely to get the chance to chat to you about your love for marine photography and community lake conservation. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for closing the book on Into the Wild for this year. And I wish you, you, I can say this now, it's the 15th of December as we record this at quarter to eight in the evening. Have a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And of course, and a Happy New Year. I'm sure 2022 is going to be absolutely fine. <laughs> your voice, sir, your voice dipped there. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> It'll be grand. It'll be grand. It'll be fine, won't it? 2022 will be all right. Madison, it's been lovely to chat to you on the show. Thank you so much for joining. Have a very Merry Christmas. I'm not going to attempt to say it in Welsh. And have a very Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Nadola Clowen. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Madison is working on, then you can do so on social media. Her tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.